I thought our life was pretty normal slash perfect in a sense. You know, he worked, he made enough money. I was able to stay home full time. We didn't connect like I thought we, you know, would want to, but we had three young kids. It was the season. I had all of the excuses in the world. And so when he didn't come home, I really didn't know where he was. And it took me till about five o'clock in the morning with him still not home for me to find that he was in jail, arrested for attempted human trafficking with a $250,000 bond. Hi, welcome to VMRA Healing. This is the podcast that delves into every aspect of well-being, from spiritual and mental health to physical and financial wellness. Join us on a journey of exploring and to discover the interconnected nature of these essential elements, offering insights, expert interviews, and practical tips to balance in your life. So get ready to elevate your understanding of health and embrace a holistic approach and nourishes that not just your body, but also your mind, spirit, and wallets. Welcome to VMRI Healing, where we find strength to love again. I have Amanda Quick here. She is the author of the true story, her memoir, The Sex Trafficker's Wife. You can get that on Amazon or Audible, and there's going to be links in the show notes. So, hi, Amanda. Um, I actually just had you on um, Authors Alcove. Before we get into the tough stuff, do you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yes. I. My name is Amanda. I am a best-selling author. I'm a speaker. I'm an energy healer. I have three children. Uh, I have wear a lot of hats in my household. Um, I also am the founder of a brand new nonprofit, the Golden Haven Foundation, and I have my own healing and coaching business, Amanda Quick Healing. All right. So first, I want to ask about the foundation. Um, do you mind sharing what that is? We're going to share the links in the um, in the show notes and just kind of what the uh, what the objective is and why you have it. Yeah. So the foundation is something I am working. It's in its infancy right now. And it's a nonprofit with the aim to help people who are fighting for custody from their abusers and their children's abusers. I was honestly shocked that there is not a single, uh, you know, uh, company or support network out there for this specific cause. There's a lot of people helping with homelessness. There's a lot of people helping with food. There's a lot of people helping, you know, there's women's shelters and things of the sort, but there's nobody specifically helping with the legal fight. And it cost me over $75,000 and 18 month long to fight for custody from a man who was a a felony sex offender and was sexually grooming my children. And that to me is ridiculous. So I'm set out to help other people in those situations who didn't have the economic privilege that I did and to help them get to the right mental and emotional state to begin to have this fight, to help them with grants if necessary, and to build community around those who've been through some of the toughest challenges that at least I've faced in this lifetime. And so some of those toughest challenges were actually written in your book. Do you mind sharing about your memoir? Yes. So my memoir is my story that begins in 2016 after my then husband at the time was arrested for attempted human trafficking for trying to have uh, sex with an 11 and 14 year old. And I, unbeknownst to me, this had been his double life in a sense. And I did not know that this was happening. I didn't believe it to be true. And it took me a couple of years, even after his arrest, to really see that my own children were also in danger. 
And so the the book is my story of understanding, of unraveling, of coming to terms with the person that I was married to, seeing the truth of who that was, and then setting out to have the fight in the family court to get me and my children to safety. So in the book, you said one of the hardest part was the judgment. And I know in my own life, when I was going through my most difficult time, the hardest part was also judgment. Do you mind sharing like what type of judgments you experienced and how it impacted you at the time. Yeah. And so even in the very, very beginning, judgments from everybody around me after he was arrested, wanting to know the details and judging me for staying and saying, you can leave, no problem. Not understanding that I was sitting in a ton of my own childhood trauma about what happens when children grow up without their father and not believing that he was dangerous because I was determined that there was some other explanation. And so every time people would try to talk to me with judgment, it would only cause further isolation. And so outside judgment just caused me to go within and isolate myself further. And what that actually did was cause me to isolate myself when to the point that the only safe person to talk to about what was happening was my husband himself, the cause of the abuse. The, the person who caused the trauma was the safe person in my situation. And so it created a trauma bond where it was me and him against the rest of the world because we were going to repair our family. We were going to you know, be the best parents possible. This was going to be his wake up call to be the dad and the husband that he always should be. And I deepened that belief and I allowed this person essentially to create this reality for me. And the only person who understood me and what I was going through was him. The only person who cared about our family in the, in that way was him. And it just set off this this fight for me to save him, to protect him, to keep our family safe and together, which made it near impossible to see the truth of who he actually was and what was actually happening. And so that that judgment from other people meant that I only went towards my abuser, essentially, even even deeper. And later on, the judgment got even more because how did I not see that? The evidence was right in front of me. And so you know, when, when I could not see it any further, I was judging myself for the choices that I was making to stay in that situation. And two, because I believed I was keeping my, my children safe by staying when in fact the opposite was true. And as a mother, when we realize we've been putting our children in danger, there's a lot of judgment and a lot of shame and a lot of guilt that comes up. And to realize that I didn't know what I didn't know and to sit in judgment of myself for that. And what did that mean about me as a person, as a mom, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, the, the, it goes on and on and releasing that judgment, honoring that I only knew what I knew and I made the best decisions that I could at the time and really believing that at my core was some of the hardest work that I had to do in order to come to the place that I am today. You know, I don't think we really went into exactly what had happened. So I know that you were expecting him to come home. Do you mind sharing? Yeah. So I was a stay-at-home mom, three kids. Uh, they were one, four and five. And my husband worked long hours, made pretty good money. I thought we lived a normal American life. And one day he just doesn't come home. And he worked late before, but it was really un unheard of for him not to be, you know, to be at 11, 12 o'clock at night. Eventually I went to bed and it was about five o'clock in the morning that I called non-emergency dispatch when he still wasn't home. And I found that he was in jail, arrested for attempted human trafficking with a $250,000 bond. And that was probably the shock of my life. And I didn't even know what, I didn't know what the charge meant. I didn't know what, what any of it meant. And I 
I believed there also had to be some other explanation because it just couldn't possibly be true. This wasn't who I was married to. This made no sense. I thought even perhaps somebody had stolen his wallet. Like it was that far outside of my belief sphere. And later learned that there was a sting operation where children were offered and he had some involvement. But the other thing that I think people don't realize is that the family doesn't see all of the evidence. We don't see the criminal case file. We don't see anything because they're still building their case. And I didn't see any of the details until four years later. And so I chose to believe my husband who said, and he admitted to seeing adult escorts, but would never have ever been involved with children. And I chose to believe him because I couldn't see any other possibility. And even that was a far cry from my understanding of reality. And so I, I sat in a, a place where the only way that I could be present with myself and understand who I was as a, as a mom and as a wife was to believe my husband that, that he was a safe person, that he was a good father. And I proceeded with that until I was faced with a different truth. I know that one of the turning points that you had cited was your shift from seeing him as a good man to what he had actually done was seeing some evidence with your children. Do you mind sharing? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it, it wasn't an, it wasn't a one thing. It was something, it was a lead up of things. Um, especially my middle son, who's my most emotional, empathetic, energetically sensitive child. He started behaving differently. He started getting almost uh, like coming on to me at like six, you know, climbing my lap, wanting to kiss me. And what that, what is going on? It started setting up red flags in my mind, something else is happening. Some, he's being exposed to something. I don't know what's happening, but I'm still trying to build some other explanation here. And one of the big things that shifted for me when was I dro was dropping him off at school and they were all in the car, all talking loud as they do. And I was, I was in my own head prepping for a work presentation. So I wasn't even listening to them. And as I stop the car and they get out, my middle son says to me, sometimes I suck on daddy's fingers. And I just, what? You can't respond. You can't have a reaction. You can't freak out because that's going to shut him down. You have to be, have a good day at school. And I called my lawyers and I called his therapist and I was in the middle of a custody fight. You can't make new accusations. I could be seen as the alienating parent and lose custody of my kids, which happens in many situations here. And I had to proceed very, very carefully. And I also had to continue to send my children over to this, this man's house at, at, a, at a regular interval because that was the current court agreement. And that was probably the lowest point to see what was happening because all of a sudden I was flooded with, wait, this was the man who was arrested for trying to have sex with children. Wait, this was the man who, when I was 18, was asking for pictures of me as a teenager. Wait, all of these things are lining up and all of these things that I hadn't been willing to see were in my face and my own children were who was in danger. And that was probably the most challenging time in my life. There was about a three month period where I felt like there was no way out. There was nothing I could do. I already had the lawyers. I already had the evaluators. I always had, I already had the therapists. I called CPS. I reported him. They did nothing. His probation officer polygraphed him. They didn't even ask him about the finger sucking incident, actually. But I didn't know that even till later. But they cleared him and moved on. And it felt like nothing I was going to do was going to stop this train and that I was going to end up sharing custody with a man who was going to abuse my children. And I was diagnosed with PTSD. I was having full-blown panic attacks. Every single custody exchange was 
high conflict, screaming, swearing, all of it. The kids were exhibiting massive amounts of alienated behavior towards me. They didn't want to come to my house because I was the one who left them. I did all of these bad things. They were aggressive. They were, you know, their their behavior was on high alert at all times. And I I didn't even know what I could do at that point in time. And it was it was really my my rock bottom. I know one of the things that you had said even earlier today is that there was a trauma bond and that that was one of the reasons why you had trouble seeing the truth. Do you mind explaining what a trauma bond is and how it impacted you? So a trauma bond is where you become deeply bonded to your abuser. You become protective of your abuser and It is more common than not, truthfully, in most abusive situations because you actually become addicted to your abuser. It's it's the same chemical response as a dopamine high with video games or drugs or alcohol or anything else. There's a high. There's a love bombing. There's everything is good where it's us against the world. We're going to fix everything. And then there's a withdrawal. And when that withdrawal happens, everything you do is to, to get that high back. And you become addicted to the cycle of abuse and you become addicted to keeping things known and safe. And and that actually becomes your safety net. The identity that you create in that high becomes your, your safe place. And our bodies are designed to keep us safe. And that's, that's, that's how our brains are, are run on autopilot, especially when we're in fight or flight is all we can do is search for safety. And that safety is attached to the person causing the abuse. And so even though it's actually unsafe, our, our, our systems and the chemical responses in our, in our bodies don't know that. And so we become deeply bonded and protect our abusers in order to keep ourselves safe and our understanding of who we are and our identity safe. And unraveling that is not an easy feat and it and it comes with a lot of facing of self it comes with a complete destruction of your identity and what you know to be true and it comes with a whole lot of basically changing everything that you know about yourself and everything around you and people who have been beaten down and been made to feel like they are worthless and they don't know anything and they're never going to be able to provide for their families or they're never going to be able to you know, be the parent they want to be or whatever other stories have been fed to them in that time, they believe that also to be true. And so that person isn't going to be capable of standing up and finding another reality. And so instead, they protect the only safe reality they know, which happens to be riddled in a ton of abuse. Looking at some of the, your story, I can see where how the trauma bond slowly broke. What were some of the yes. what were some of the things that caused that trauma bond to finally break and be able to start seeing the truth? Which you were, you know, it took a little bit longer, but it it did. It took some time, and the things that helped me were coming out of the bubble. It was like he and I had created a bubble, us again, him against the world, and. But the reality of life was that once he was on probation and he had lost his job, financially, we were living off savings that weren't going to last forever. And he tried to get a job and it didn't work because of his mental state. And so I realized I was going to need to, and I wasn't going to make the same money he made, but I needed, I had been six years out of the workforce. It was time to close the employment gap. And when I went back to work, I was making half of what he had been making, but it was something. And separating myself, even physically for eight hours a day, 
started that process. Having him not in my head 24 seven started that process because it had gotten to the point where he was literally on the phone or in my presence 24 seven on in some regard, he would go to the grocery store and we'd be on the phone when he was out on bond and not allowed at home. He was on the phone 24 seven. I couldn't have a thought without him there, but going back to work eight hours a day, he wasn't in my head anymore. And my identity started to exist beyond mom and wife. I started to, people started to, you know, talk to me about other problems. I went back to IT work where my brain meant more than just mom and wife and meal planning and playing with the kids, et cetera. And that started to build a new identity for me. And those two identities couldn't commingle. I was terrified that anybody at my job was going to figure out what my home life was like. And so I created a separate safe zone in a sense. And my job became my new safe place that wasn't my husband. And when those started to uh, collide in a sense, that was a, that was a piece of starting to see different versions of the truth, because I started to realize that I couldn't actually be with somebody who even just admitted to having a hundred plus affairs with adult women. I couldn't actually be okay with that in my marriage anymore. It started to feel like there was literally ghosts in the bedroom when he would try to be intimate and I started to push him away. I started to, I turned to alcohol. I was trying to escape from that version of reality because it wasn't safe anymore. And when I saw what I was doing, this is not okay. I can't live like this. I started to say, I got to do something about it. And for me, I turned to really saying, I, I want to actually date somebody else because a big part of that was the infidelity and finding somebody who who was was safe in that way and who didn't cause all this betrayal and one who saw me as somebody to have fun with again. And so there was another level of identity coming back out that I was more than mom and wife. I was somebody who liked to have adventure. I'd like to go on road trips. I like to do stuff and laugh again in a different way. And that was all about me rebuilding my sense of self outside of this relationship. And as that started to form, I started to see some of the manipulations because wait, those things aren't okay. That's not how other people behave. And it started to open my eyes very, very slowly to what was actually happening. And I started to see the change in behavior with my children. I started to see as I pulled away that he started to install these beliefs in them that I was leaving them. And I couldn't be around my kids unless I was around my husband, which I didn't want to be. And so I was separating myself in order to get my sense of self back in a, in a way. And that's what started to unravel this trauma bond. But I was still very stuck in the family unit and protecting my kids in the family unit because of my own childhood trauma and my dad leaving our lives and what that sent me, the path it sent me down. And so that was another layer to unravel once I was no longer tied to my husband is I had to unravel the tie to him in that family unit, which was the last piece of that safety for me that was that was connected to to all of this. One of the most powerful messages you said at the end of your book was that you began to heal when you stopped giving your power away. Yes. Can you explain that? Yeah. And I think it kind of ties into what you were just talking yes. about. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I had a belief that you know, you hire the lawyers, you hire the, the high powered lawyers, you follow their advice and the legal system does what it's supposed to do. They suggested hiring parental rights evaluators. It's called something different in every state, but in Colorado, it's a third party mental health person who evaluates both parties, does psych evaluations and makes a recommendation to the court. I had, we hired them. Um, I 
I had, I had all of the, the kids were in therapy. I was in therapy, like all of the people were hired. And so I thought that, you know, and I even remember having this conversation with myself when we hired the parental rights evaluator. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to put this together. He's been arrested for human trafficking. He's pled guilty to attempted solicitation of a minor. He's a felony sex offender on sex offender probation. And yet he thinks he wants 50-50 custody. That didn't feel right. Even without believing that he was dangerous, that still didn't feel right. But I don't know how to put this together because the court is saying that both parents should get 50-50 custody. And he's saying that's what he wants, but I don't even see how this makes sense. And so I had this thought, well, somebody else who knows more than I do they can figure it out. And I was just going to hand the reins over. You tell me how to do this. You tell me how to, the lawyers will decide, the the evaluator will decide, ultimately the judge will decide. I'm out. It's basically what I did. And the, it, it was a necessary component because all of the data was collected in that period of time. And there was a recommendation of the, to the court, but the recommendation in the, the first time was still essentially 50-50 custody. And so it was like, well, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I guess we'll try. I guess that's that's the only option I have. And the we sent we even sent over a settlement to try to arrange the settlement of 50-50 custody to which he didn't even respond to because there was one component that wasn't 50-50 where I would have a little bit more decision-making than he would have. And that was unacceptable to him. And so after that, things only that's when things started to get really, really bad. That's when my son made more of the disclosures and the behavior started to shift. And so we withdrew the settlement and said, we're going to court. And I was still at my rock bottom and go, I don't know how we're going to do this. I need help, but I don't know how, because I feel like I've done everything. And it was my, my therapist, my regular mental health therapist, as I was leaving her office one day, because even she was appalled at what was happening. Everybody was appalled that this was going on and nobody seemed to be able to help me. She said, Hey, have you ever seen a psychic? It's like, huh, you crazy? Like, you want me to see a fortune teller? How is that going to help me? And she swore she knew somebody who was good. And I was at rock bottom. I would have tried anything. And when I went to go see this lady, she made me face a part of me that none of the other specialists had done. She made me realize that I truly hadn't yet made a choice. I was doing all of the actions and telling everybody else to choose. I wasn't choosing. I wasn't saying this is what needs to happen. I was saying, you figure it out. And when I saw that, and I saw that there was a part of me that was still hoping there was another explanation. There was a part of me that was hoping the specialist would say, actually, you know, he's got some issues, but he's not dangerous. There was a part of me that still wanted my family back together. I didn't want to be in that situation at all. And because I was still hoping for that, and I was giving everybody else the power to make the decision, I wasn't in charge. And I had to take back the reins. I had to drive the bus. I had to take the pen back essentially and write the story. And when I saw that I was doing that and I saw that I was terrified of him in order to do that and why that was, I realized that in that moment, if I wanted to get to safety and I wanted my kids out safe, that I had to take back my power essentially. And what I did at that point is instead of saying, I hired you, you figure out, I said, this is what I need to happen. How can you help me? This is what is happening. This is what I see. This is what I believe is true. How can you help me make this happen? 
And so it's a slight shift in energy, but it's a big shift because I'm no longer saying you figure it out because you're the specialist. I'm saying this is what is true. This is what needs to happen. How are we going to make that happen? How can you use your influence, your whatever to help me? And the moment I made that change and I left that psychic's office, I basically started to talk to everybody. I stopped hiding what I was going through and I said, I need help. And I need help to make myself and my kids out of this situation safely. And I got introduced to ICE and Homeland Security. I got the case file unsealed. I got multiple people helping me talk to probation and escalating things. I took every single action that anybody could come up with, with the energy of getting us to safety. And I did everything and then everything they could think of and everything that they knew people who could think of. And I just kept going. And I realized I had a much bigger circle of support when I was saying, this is what needs to happen and why, and what am I going to do about it? And my stack of evidence went from a few things to a three-inch binder full of recordings and documentation and everything that we had been going through. And we walked into court six weeks after the conversation with the psychic and put on the performance of our life to explain that the children were in danger today if the court did nothing to stop it and what we wanted them to do about it. And the judge was appalled at what was going on. And even though she did, in fact, give him one last chance to get his act together, I think knowing that he was both incapable and unwilling to do so. And the consequence of that was that he would only receive supervised visitation. And so I won my case just by taking back control and saying, this is what needs to happen. And this is my truth and being willing to say so to anybody and everybody and ask for support. Yes. But not having anybody else in charge of those decisions. I think it's so important that you made the distinction of you made the choice to change your life and you were the only one to have that power to do that. How would you help someone else know realize that they are not making the choices that they're just letting things happen like what was the one thing that made you realize that you needed to make that change so for me it was really being being faced with the, the realization that the outcome that was coming and i i could just like i could see the cards playing out you know you just like you can just see the the train wreck about to happen sort of thing and I had everybody telling me that you're doing everything. And yet it felt like this impossible situation. And I felt like a victim to my circumstance. And I think that's a really important distinction. When somebody feels like they're in the victim seat, and this isn't a victim shame or to say anything of the sort that it's your fault because it's not. But if you are still sitting in this is happening to me and there's nothing I can do to change it or stop it, that's you staying in that energy where you are powerless to change your reality. And what we have to instead shift that to is see what choices you have made to get you to this point. Because no, you didn't choose to go be abused. And nobody is suggesting that. But you did choose to either stay in the relationship, you chose to date the person, you chose to take whatever action to put yourself in some situation. And so you can also make the choice to get out of that situation. And you are the person, the only person who can choose to change your situation from whatever point in time you are. And so it's, it's recognizing where we're still, we still believe that we are not in charge of our reality, that we, this is happening to us instead of for us. Because when I shifted to this is happening to me and I don't have any choices to this is happening for me. And even when it's not working out, it's giving me the evidence I need. Even when it's 
getting worse. It's giving me the data that I need. Even when my kid is saying more horrific things, it's giving me the data that I need to prove my point in court. This is happening for me, not to me. And when I shifted that, I was able to produce the data that I needed to present to the court and ultimately have the outcome that I asked for. Thank you so much for sharing that. Another really powerful thing that you had shared in your book, you you mentioned that you started putting you first. And when you started putting you first, you were actually putting the needs and safety of your family first. Can you please explain that? Because I think so many people don't realize that there's so much truth in that. It's kind of like the idea of like the airplane, you know, you, you have to make sure you have your mask on before you can start saving other people. Yeah, I... I remember the conversations with myself even in the early days of my ex-husband's arrest saying that if my kids are okay, I'll be okay. Like that was the conversation with myself, which means, which meant I need to support my husband. I need to make sure they have visitation with him. I need to make sure that they feel connected to him because that's going to help them be okay. If they're okay, I'm good. That was my belief. And so everything I did was to focus on what I believed they needed. And what I believed they needed was two parents in their lives. I believed they needed a mentally stable uh, father, which meant that I would give all of my time and energy to support, to help. I played therapist with him. I had, he was decompressing his basically, uh, you know, infidelity and abuse of me with me as the therapist. I was, I was re-traumatizing myself, believing this was going to help him so that my kids would be okay. And I did this repeatedly until I started to see that it wasn't helping. He wasn't getting better and things were only getting worse. But when I shifted to me first, which meant I started dating somebody else, which meant I wasn't home hundred percent of the time, which meant I sought out my career and I found people who were safe, who could help me find me again. When I started to realize that my mental health needed to be stable so that they could reflect back what that meant, that that would actually help them in a different way their behavior started to shift when I, and I notice this still today, if I'm a basket case, if I'm going through something or I'm stressed out, they're, they're bouncing off the walls just every single time. And I think any mother can see that usually, but if I'm calm and I'm okay and I'm good and I'm paying attention to my needs, if I'm getting exercise, if I'm eating right, if I'm doing the things that I know I need to take care of me, they're way calmer. And if they're going through something, I'm also in a way better place to respond to it. And so I started to see that I had to put my physical needs first. I had to put my emotional needs first. I had to put my mental needs first. And eventually I had to put my spiritual needs first as well in order to be not just an example, but to be that pillar for them to shift in order to they to then process what was happening. And I started to immediately see what they were going through as a response to all the trauma in a different way. It wasn't my kids are misbehaving. It was they were having a really hard time with the back and forth. And and I looked at it differently. I reacted to it differently. And it allowed our relationship to be saved eventually in the end, because once once all was said and done, they came home to me and I was able to reestablish that safe, that safe connection again. But I couldn't do that if I was following what I believed they needed, which would have kept me in that relationship instead of what I needed to be severed from it, to not be married to somebody who had done those things, to not be married to someone who was capable of those actions, who, and to see the truth of that experience. And I think every single mother out there, it's one of the very hardest things and to, the, to this day still, still can be challenging depending on what's happening. 
But that self-care and putting ourselves first is actually the most unselfish thing we can do for our children. So you had to do a lot of healing to get to the point where you're able to write a memoir, to be able to share your story like this and not break down. What did you do that brought about the most healing? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. Um, so because of the the experience with the psychic and because of this realization that there was more out there than just what we physically tangibly could touch and that there was help out there in a different way because a lot of what she did was she called herself an angel channeler, channeler, excuse me. And she was basically reading messages from guardian angels, helper angels, et cetera. And I was pretty agnostic and disbelieving of any such thing prior to this, but because it was also like real and true and played out exactly as she said, it's sort of like a, wait, this, this stuff is real. And if she can talk to them, so can I, that was my belief because I don't think, I think that we're all gifted in our own ways. And I was set out on this seeking journey afterwards where I'm going to figure this out. What's the truth of the universe? There's more to this experience than I previously had, had recognized. And what I, where I found myself, especially because this was just after COVID started and the world had shut down and the online spaces blew up was in groups, spiritual communities where people were able to work with energy in a different way and to see the experiences that we've had lifetimes after lifetimes that have led us to where we are and to see that it's not just physically what's happening to us, but our emotional body, our mental body and our spiritual body are all connected to this experience and that just as my mindset needed to change in order for my physical environment to change, the same is true and everything is connected. And I started to deepen my my understanding of what healing actually means and traditional mental health talk therapy never really worked for me. And I started to understand why. And I started to realize there was other ways to work with our energy bodies to release that stuck energy and release those stories and emotions. And I could see the outcomes of those things in a different way. And so it gave me tools to not only help myself and my children, but to help other people. And I don't believe anything is incurable and, in, and unhealable if we can get to the root of it, which is often not exactly what we think it is. It's it's usually some form of belief or story or emotion that gets installed in early childhood or even further back. It's usually passed on through our ancestral line through our parents and the things that they experienced and the reasons that they acted the way that they acted and, and looking at the patterns, because my brain wants to, wants to put a puzzle together. I've, I worked in it for a reason because it was, it was the puzzle analytical. And I started seeing people just like a computer with a set of programs that we could uninstall. And I started to see how all of these parts are connected with the mental and emotional and spiritual and physical bodies. And then how we could, really work with the whole system and the whole network of systems with the with to use the computer analogy again in order to help us come to a place where we were our whole self and we were and if anything uninstalling all of the patterns that had been taught to us so that we could get in touch with our truest version of self and figure out what what exactly we're here to do because the other big piece and the biggest probably healing shift for me is realizing that not only was everything happening for me as I was coming out of it, but the whole experience happened for me. It gave me understanding and compassion for people in these situations. It gave me understanding and compassion for a hell of a lot of trauma out there in the world. And it gave me 
empathy for people still stuck in those situations, a really big story to share, and all of the keys and codes to help other people out of it and be an example of in an in a after the fact sort of way with people who really know I've been there because they've read my book, they know. And all of that actually happened for me. And so I don't look at it, go, I've been through this horrific thing anymore. It's I've got a big story to share and I want the world to know what's possible. And so that shift into it's it's part of what I'm here to do for the world. It's part of a bigger purpose. It's part of this important thing means that I, I can sit here and share these horrific things without breaking down. If anything, I'm excited to share more with people. I'm excited to share the deepest, hardest vulnerable pieces because it can help other people relate on a different level. And so, you know, all of that healing wasn't overnight. No, (laughs) but all of that mind mindset work and emotional release work and helping me repattern my beliefs and what I believe to be true and where that all stemmed from really allowed me to get to the point that I am today. And I'm not done. (laughs) There's more to be done, I'm sure. But I really think it's important that people realize that where you are today isn't where you're going to be in a year. And I look back where I was even three years ago when all this started, I'm a completely different person. And that's a good thing. It's growth, it's improvement. And all of these experience are, experiences are helping us on some level. And I believe that in a different way than I did before. And I believe I feel more connected to my purpose and other people and why we're here in a way that I didn't understand or even care to understand before. And that really helps me keep going every day. And through your healing, you've done so much good work, like you're sharing this book. And also, um, I kind of would like to circle back to the foundation that you have. What type of people can reach out to you for help and how can they reach you? So the, the goal is to reach people who are in active custody disputes with their abusers and their children's abusers and give them tools and support. I will share, we are in the brand new infancy stages. So please be patient as we get this stood up. I also am looking for people who are in a legal profession or mental health profession that are licensed in really any state because I would like this to be national, if not more, and want to help partner with us and can either take on pro bono cases or you know reduce their rates or things like that and can help work with us. And if you're in that situation, I want to have And I'm building a set of tools, basically, to help you get into the mindset and help you process the emotional pieces, to help you get to the point where you choose to take your power back. Because I can't do it for you. And this is this is the thing: is I can't I can't shift everybody's reality for them. I can't say this is this is what I did. Go do this. But I can help give you some tools so that you can get to the point where, when you're ready, you can do that for yourself, and you'll have resources available to do that. And the website, which will be linked, is thegoldenhaven.org. There's a contact me form on there. You can also email me, Amanda, at thegoldenhaven.org. And we will we will see what we can do to help. And you also talked about a, in your book a resource for your children. You actually read to your children to help them learn boundaries and um, see red flags. Can you share about that book? And I'll make sure I put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. So the book that I started reading to them and is, uh, I say, I said, no, a a kid to kids guide to keeping private parts private. And it's a really small book and it's written from a kid's lens. Um, and I think I shared in the other, the other podcast that I actually met the author on Facebook, which is super fun. She sold like 250,000 copies. It's, she's done amazing work in the, in the space of helping prevent child abuse, especially. And 
the the book basically takes the takes the reader on a child's interpretation of a sleepover gone wrong and what the child does in that situation that goes and locks themselves in the bathroom and calls their parents and and when reading this book as you talk through it from a child's lens it then goes on to add red flags and it, and it has this understanding of what's a red flag and that that's the boundary violation but a kid doesn't know what a boundary means so it's red flag means stop this is where we all go ask for help or this is not okay and when our bodies don't feel right this is not okay and if somebody tries to show you videos or pictures of naked people that's a red flag and if things feel weird in this way that's a red flag and it goes through at a child's perspective and a child's lens of what those red flags are and what a child should do when those happen and who they should talk to, who they should report to. And if that person doesn't listen, how they need to keep going and they need to keep trying and they need to ask for help. And it's putting the empowerment back in the child's lap, essentially, because the reality is the majority of people who are abused as children, it happens to somebody the child already knows, whether it's a relative, a teacher, a a friend of some sort, it's somebody that already established some level of trust. And the boundary violations just get a little bit, they just move the barrier just a little bit. And once that becomes okay, they move it again. And that's what I saw time and time again with my with my ex-husband in many different ways. And I could see this, this boundary moving with how he was treating the kids and what was appropriate and what was not appropriate. And he seemed to not even know that those things were inappropriate. And yet the kids also were responding to well, he's a safe person. He's my father. This is okay. This is how, this is how it's, it's okay that daddy crawls into my bed at night. It's okay that daddy does these things because they don't know any better. And so establishing red flags as boundaries help empower the child to ask questions and to go, wait, this isn't okay. And who do I talk to about it? And if that person doesn't hear me, who do I keep talking to about it? And I think that it's an important thing for any household out there to read this to their children so that the children can understand that they also need to listen to their bodies and they also need to know what's okay and what's not okay. And if something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right. And that somebody will listen to them because mommy or daddy is reading this and and helping empower them to know what's okay and what's not okay. I think it's so important that you pointed out that groomers have a tendency to like, they will first put, um, you know, try a little boundary how do you respond if you respond okay okay i'm going to go cross that if you responded bad then i'm just going to keep doing that until you're okay with it and then i'll cross it again and that's how that's how what grooming is (laughs) essentially it is essentially what grooming is whether it's sexual grooming manipulative whatever it is that boundary pushing is is the behavior of the groomer to get to their end goal, whatever that is. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you sharing your story. I really appreciate how vulnerable you were. Um, I definitely encourage anybody who, I encourage everybody to read The Sex Trafficker's Wife just because it is it shares something that's so incredibly important. And also from a perspective that is not very well known, the wife and why it takes people because I've no, I, you are not the first person I've met and you are not the only person I know who is in a marriage or relationship with somebody and who did not leave right away because they didn't believe and I think it's hard for people to be like how do you not you know but anyway so I just want well hindsight is 2020 they see it after the fact they did not see everything that was happening up to that point and Anyway, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening until the end of our episode. I hope you join us next week. I love hearing from my listeners. So feel free to email me at vmrahealing at gmail.com. VMRA is spelled V-I-A-M-A-R-E healing, H-E-A-L-I-N-G. You can also check out our website at healingmindbodyspiritwithangie.com. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Please join me next week. God bless.